0: congratulations you may now turn your tassels
1: you're listening you're listening to the oh if we say it at the same time
0: no we can't do that
1: you're listening to the day after graduation podcast from longwood university welcome back to the day after graduation podcast i'm paige rollins
0: i'm ryan catherwood In today's episode, From Africa, we have two acts, two stories from Longwood alumni who spent some time in the nonprofit sector in Africa and had a fascinating set of experiences that shaped their lives and careers.
1: We'll start off the show with Act One, mission in Madagascar, and Anna Prow, class of 1988, whose journey to Africa begins with the Peace Corps, where a professional calling is born. Experience abroad
2: makes you a little more aware of your own self because you have to test yourself in a new environment. Like when I'm here walking down the street in Washington, DC, I don't think about myself and my decisions and my actions the same way I do when I'm in a different place with different language and different people and a, you know, a whole new everything.
0: Like many of our stories on day after graduation, Anna Prow's professional journey really begins in Farmville on a pathway to become an educator.
2: My name is Anna Prow. I'm a 1988 of what was then Longwood College, which is now Longwood University, and I run my own startup called Trellis Partners, and we are in service to nonprofit organizations that need some help to uh, grow or to go through a period of transformation. When I went on the campus trip, when I went on the tour with my parents, I remember cresting a hill on the drive to Farmville. And at the top of that small hill was a, It was a, this was like a, probably a February or March, you know, early spring, late winter day. And when we crested that hill, there was a tree that was encrusted in ice and the sun caught it just right. And it was like this gleaming, beautiful thing. And it just really sort of started the weekend off right. And I was just sort of predisposed, I suppose, to, uh, to love uh, Longwood once I got there.
0: Anna had nothing but great things to say about her time at Longwood and decided that teaching was going to be her career pathway. She graduated from Longwood and headed off to teach eighth grade.
2: 22 year old starting to teach in a school with, you know, well, first of all, I started teaching eighth graders. And um, eighth graders, um, one of the things that I learned about eighth graders is that that age is just such a pivotal age for young people. And I really appreciated working with eighth graders, but I think my, my strengths was, were with the, the older students where I could just sort of, I guess, reason with them a
0: little bit more. Her biggest takeaways from teaching helped her develop a skill for planning, creating learning objectives and grew a lot in her first post-college experience.
2: So one pivotal thing that I learned was sort of articulate what you're seeking to achieve and plan on the ways that you can do it and the tactics that you'll use to do that. And that has been invaluable in my personal life and in my career as well. Also, you know, I I learned a lot about sort of um, compassion and, and kindness and, you know, students respond to support and encouragement and engagement. And you know, I guess it sort of comes naturally to me, but also when you realize that, that kindness and patience gets results, it's easier to practice it even more. Yet by the same token, teaching also taught me to be firm and consistent and, and fair and to hold people accountable. And so that sort of balance of things when you're managing a classroom are really, really helpful in a later career.
0: After teaching, eventually, Anna started on a journey that somehow she always knew she'd embark on.
2: I feel like Peace Corps was always sort of baked in to me. I just, you know, a a lot of um, young people know that after sixth grade, you go to seventh grade, and then you go to high school, and then after high school, you go to college, and then after college, you do whatever. I've always known that it's sixth grade, seventh grade, high school, college, and and Peace Corps was going to be in the mix somewhere. I don't even know when I first conceived of it or when it first came to me. It just always sort of was there in my in my consciousness. Got to the last page of the application and I can picture the box now what it looked like on the on the back half of the page and there were several check boxes and you were supposed to check your preferred region of service. Now, Peace Corps can't always give you your preferred region of service because they really have to match sort of the country's needs and requests with your skills and the timeline and all that stuff. But they, I know that they, because I worked at Peace Corps, I know that they try to match your preference to the extent that you can. And before that, before that minute, I had thought that I wanted to go to Eastern Europe and be a volunteer in an urban environment and, you know, hang out in Eastern Europe for a while. And then for some reason, I hovered over that checkbox and I checked no preference. And I think it was one of the best decisions I ever made because I got sent to Madagascar. And it was a rich, powerful, amazing Peace Corps experience. It was a mix of thrill and terror. You know, I mean, it was on the other side of the world. Madagascar had been a socialistic country until 1990, I guess. So it was brand new, open to Westerners, essentially, non-European Westerners. And I was um, group two, so where was the second group of volunteers in country. So it was uh, thrilling, you know, just to to be on this island that has so many endemic flora and fauna and has this amazingly
0: special role, you know, with regard to the natural world Anna was surprised and obviously really excited. Heading to Madagascar is definitely not what she was planning on when she joined the Peace Corps.
2: You know, the plane ride down, our group had met in Philadelphia, so we also had three days of pre-departure orientation. Um, I ended up doing that job when I worked at Peace Corps later. And in Philadelphia, we had, you know, before we even left for Madagascar, we had some basically three days of orientation and, and prep. And that's where our group started to get to know each other and started to bond. And we all hit it off quite delightfully, and we did, we had a long layover in, in London on the way down, and instead of resting, we all went out on the town and just sort of partied and, and just ran ourselves ragged. And then when we got to Madagascar, I, for one, and I know a couple of others might have been, I was just sort of overwhelmed and exhausted because it's a very long trip, and we had made that very long trip even longer by basically partying for 12 hours straight in London, and that's probably one lesson I learned also as a, as a younger person was, uh, you know, sometimes you got to rest and you got to prep a little bit, prep yourself physically before a new significant life undertaking.
0: When she landed, they dived into an 11-week training program. The Peace Corps equipped them with as much as possible. But at the end, left it up to the team to learn what the local communities needed once they were on the ground. So she hit the ground running and got started.
2: Our plane arrives and we all get out together and there were Peace Corps staff to receive us. So it's not like we had to kind of go and figure ourselves out. Um, And they had the Peace Corps symbol and the papers and they grabbed our luggage for us. And we were all a little just sort of gobsmacked and exhausted and probably even hung over. And, you know, we were just this, we were just, I was at least, I I won't speak for my my fellows. But, you know, I I don't think I remember it with utmost precision, but of course it's overwhelming. It's hot and it's humid. And the condition of the airport is sort of, um, you know, sixty cinder block style. It's, you know, I'll use air quotes to say sort of typical developing world airport with you know, well-functioning basics, doesn't have the, the comforts of a, of a contemporary fancy airport. And from there, we went to our, our, our training center. And that's where we started getting exposed to local food and getting to know each other and started to get into stage and started to sink into that 11 weeks of stage. I remember I remember distinctly one of our early meals was beef tongue. And I wonder if it might have even been our first meal just to just to wake us up a little bit. And, you know, I can eat almost anything, but it, it was an awakening. I had never had beef tongue before. I'm, I'm still not a super fan of it. But it, it was a, a wake up that, you know, people like different things than you do. And, um, you know, it was, it was good, uh, good first exposure. Eleven weeks later, we had also stated our requests for where we would like to go in country, and I did feel pretty strongly that if I was going to be an English teacher trainer, I wanted it to be somewhere where English was going to be helpful. And I knew there was tourism, and I knew there were a lot of spice. Tra- there was a lot of spice trade in Madagascar, and so I asked for either a, a spice exporting town or a tourist town, because one of the things, and I'm very grateful that that Peace Corps taught me and and, and teaches is it, it requires you to be reflective about your role in the world around you. And in development and international development, you have to ask yourselves a thousand questions every day about you know, how is my work, how is my action, how is my my presence here making a difference for good or for ill or or for other. And so I didn't want to go somewhere and teach English unless I knew it could be helpful. I preferred not to not to do that unless I knew it could be helpful. So I got sent to a region where one third of the world's vanilla is grown. It was a town called Sambava. An incredible, gorgeous town. The green mountains went right up to the to the sea. Lemurs in the trees. You could walk down the street and smell vanilla drying in the sun. Rich, thick forests. It was just extraordinary. And um, my my home was a a compound run by the municipality for visit for visitors, basically. And my bungalow, my thatched roofed sort of probably 20 foot square bungalow was right on the Indian Ocean. And it just I, I can still smell the 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 sea, I can still feel what it felt like to swim every day or twice a day in the ocean that was right outside my my front door. And, you know, it was also centrally located. So folks like to stop by, which was really helpful because Peace Corps can be lonely. And, you know, I will say that when I first got to Sambhava with my, you know, American energy and my fresh training and my renewed purpose and my, what I thought was my mandate to be an English teacher trainer... You know, I was really assertive in my early days going from school to school saying, "Hi, my name's Anna. I'm I'm here from the United States. I'm with Peace Corps and I'm an English teacher trainer and I can help you with your pedagogy and I can help you with teaching English and I can help you learn your English." And I went from school to school to school to school to school to introduce myself. And the Malagasy were like, "Who is this lady? What is she doing? What is going on here?" And they I didn't get a great response because I was all up in their face basically. I was all up in their business and so finally a combination of discouragement and exhaustion and better sense made me say you know what, let me just chill out for a little bit and i, I call it my my hammock realization because I, I chilled out a little bit and started hanging out in my in my hammock in my backyard and that's when people started to come to me saying oh you teach english well then i'd like this and we need this and we could use that and can you come to this and that was a really helpful lesson as well, that my better judgment, of course, was to be aggressive and go out there and see how I could help. But I really saw the value of my help when people came to me and told me what I might be able to do for them. And that was, a, that was transformative. That was very helpful. I'm grateful for it.
0: It's been some time since the first introduction to Madagascar, and it's interesting to hear from Anna what she's learned and what sticks out the most
2: but i can tell you one thing that i i pulled away from very clearly which is you know i didn't in my cultural competency i wanted to be as deferential as possible to the local culture and um especially after my you know sort of aggressive self introduction phase and being in peace corps and being day to day in a in an environment with a with a bunch of different cultures around me Help me see that actually you can't completely defer to everything because you do have to have your own boundaries. And finding your own boundaries within a cross-cultural context is also a really helpful thing to learn. As a woman in particularly, as um, you know an international uh, person in, in Madagascar, where there weren't a lot of international folks at the time, I think I got sort of tested a lot and those tests I had to make sure that I wasn't overly accommodating to those those tests of what folks were doing to try to figure me out. And so it was nice to learn how to set my boundaries and still be loving and compassionate and culturally aware and culturally sensitive, but without compromising sort of my own safety and my own boundaries and my own well-being.
0: And it tackled some really big issues in the community and what's really cool is that the foresight she had to build something that lasts far beyond her stay.
2: One of the things that was most important was that there was enough closure and continuity so that my absence wouldn't cause confusion or disruption. So one of the things that we had worked on in Sambava with my colleague Patrice, who has since passed, and several other volunteers in the community, as we had established the Center for Learning and Understanding English, CLUE. And I believe it's still standing and I believe it's still thriving. And CLUE was really fun. Actually, there's a story with that. We got a big donation of books. And we got boxes and boxes of books for the for Clue. And I started to help the the team set up all the books. And then it was really late one night. And for whatever reason, I had to go home. And they said, don't worry, we've got it. We'll set up the rest of the books. And I got there the next morning and the books were arranged on the shelves by size and not by subject matter. And it was a trip because that was, it was another realization that, wow, people categorize things very differently and and, you know, like... Finding a book isn't going to be so easy or so I thought by size, but, you know, usually there are other ways to organize it, but it kind of worked out for a while and, and, you know, the locals responded well to it. But anyway, but when it comes to clue, it was very important that it was self-sustaining and that it was a place for people to learn business English, that it was a community hub, that it maybe made a job or two. And so, making sure that business continuity happened was really, super important to me. Making sure I had ways to stay in touch with the people that I had that basically had become family to me was very important. Two volunteers came in my second year, so I knew that they could, you know, take care of any Peace quarry specific stuff. And just making sure that anything that I had started could be sustainable was very important to me. I remember on my, I had my thirtieth birthday in Madagascar, and I went to a neighbor's for dinner, and it was an extraordinary repast. They just had dish after dish after dish, and it was so amazing, and it was such a great party. And then out comes the pièce de résistance, and, and I'm, I'm miming it here physically. It was a platter with a lemur, a cooked lemur for for dinner. And there he was with his little five digits in the air and he was lemur for dinner. And I remember sort of making a reckoning at that point, like, this is a little upsetting to me, but you know what? They went through a lot of trouble to cook it and to make it happen and to to feast me like this. And so I had to make a judgment call in the moment. What am I going to do about this? And I had the lemur for dinner and... I, don't, I won't say I'm glad I did it, but I understand why I did it, and I don't really regret it.
0: Eventually, her mission was over, and it was time to go home, which, as you can imagine, was a huge transition.
2: Back to Virginia. I guess I went to my folks' house. I don't remember exactly. I do remember sobbing on the plane, and I remember the the flight attendant who was Malagasy woman, really just sort of seeing what was happening. And she gave me a little extra juice. And, you know, it was, I remember just sobbing on the plane home. It was, it was, um, you know, you don't know if you're going to see these people again. You don't know. The telephone systems were still really bad. I didn't know if I'd ever be able to go back by, you know, travel back there. Thankfully, I was I went back twice more. um, So I'm I'm grateful for that as well. But you don't know, you don't know if, if you're ever going to see the people that had been such a big part of your life again. And so it was a it was a sad flight home. But of course, then you start to realize that I'm going to resume this life that I had known before I went to Peace Corps and hung out in Virginia for a couple of months, and then moved up to D.C. in late 96 or early 97. And I had really fallen in love with Peace Corps at the agency. And so I sort of came up, moved to D.C. without a job yet, and stalked Peace Corps until I found a job there. I got a temp job at first, and then that ended up being um, a permanent job. And then I ended up working at Peace Corps for five years. It was a a very special time. Peace Corps has a,
0: a very warm spot in my heart Interestingly, you can only stay in the Peace Corps for five years. And after five years, Anna headed to graduate school to continue her studies. And in fact, this led her to Madagascar.
2: Right as I was graduating with my master's degree, a friend called and said they needed a year they needed somebody to go down for a year and hold the fort for an academic program at the School for N- international training in the in Tana in the capital city, and I thought, well, you know, I had committed to being domestic now being we're having a domestic focus, but i could it was just too amazing an opportunity to to turn up to to go back to Madagascar. So I went back to Tana for a year to hold the fort while a friend took sabbatical. And it's funny. I, I, my assistant in this program, I was still sort of talking, Sambava, my poor rough Sambava Malagasy, and she was like, "You know what? You're an academic director now. You can't talk like that anymore." So I had to, I had to professionalize a little bit for that for that next job, and that was kind of fun.
0: Anna continued her work in the social field and kept working to help communities.
2: I just love this part of this job. It was, it was a great organization anyway. But one of the things that I did was, and I did it in, in three different countries, I would be the advanced person to set up a field office. The first time I did it was in Mauritania. The second time I did it was back in Madagascar. And basically, you bring a fanny pack full of cash And some supplies and some awareness and some understanding of what the mission is that you're trying to accomplish. And you fly down to this country in Mauritania. I flew down and there was nobody else with me. No. uh, Well, there was later. And you set up a field office from nothing. So basically, you're in the taxi on the way to the hotel from the airport, and you start talking to the taxi driver about, you know, do you know anybody who knows sort of like typing skills? And do you know where I can rent a Xerox machine? And do you know anybody renting any office space? And do you know anybody who's looking for a job who's got administrative skills? And you just start putting it out there, and you build a team and an office and an infrastructure From nothing. And, you know, you've got this fanny pack full of cash because the banking infrastructure isn't always so strong. And you've got to hit hit the ground running and start right away. And so you build this infrastructure and then the election team can come and they've got that as their home base to work from. And that was super satisfying to build it from nothing. And then, of course, you've got to break it down so that all your commitments are closed, so that nobody's left high and dry, so that everything is... You know, leave the land as you found it, kind of thing, so that everything is nice and and closed up at the end, and that was super fun. And I did that once in Mauritania, and then I did it in Madagascar, where it was kind of super easy because I knew everybody and I knew, you know, I, I knew a lot of people and and I knew the island, and that was easy. Both of those are Francophone countries, and I spoke French thanks to Longwood College, actually, and. I was, I would like to think I was so effective at doing it in those two francophone countries that then there was a need in Honduras and the person who was supposed to be the advanced team couldn't make it for whatever reason. So they asked me to do it in Honduras. I don't speak Spanish at all. And that was another lesson that it taught me is sometimes, of course, language is essential. Of course, it is super important. Of course, it is like language is key, key, key. But I was able to utilize other skills like hiring the right people and getting the right translator and using other skills to help people understand what I was trying to achieve on behalf of the organization and set up a field office. And that's actually a really, something I'm really proud of is that I did that in a country where I had, did not speak the language at all.
0: All these experiences and expertise Anna developed led her to create her own company, Trellis Partners.
2: I started getting engaged by nonprofits that were about to undergo a period of growth. And because they had grown organically for however many years, they often didn't have the infrastructure to take that next level, to go to that next level of growth, to scale up. And so I started this uh, a series of engagements where I helped nonprofits, you know, basically DC-based national and international nonprofits, strengthen their infrastructure so that they could go to scale. I realized that there's... There's sort of a need here in the sector for that. And so that's what led me to start Trellis Partners, someone to come in, work full time, lead the transformation objectives that you want to achieve, and then leave the organization behind with a different set of needs. So that's where we are now with Trellis Partners.
0: Anna looks back at her time in Madagascar as playing a huge part in forming who she is today. All the different cultures and experiences helped shape her who she is today
1: thanks to Anna Prow for sharing her story and for producer Megan Wilson for the great interview. Now on to act 2, taking good care, we find
3: Alexandra Kenny South, class of 1997. My name is Alexandra Kenny South and I graduated from Longwood way back in 1997. After college she worked in her local community, helping
1: girls at a juvenile detention center. Then she shifted her focus back to something she studied at
3: Longwood. I worked in archaeology, actually, building on you know the skills that I had developed in Longwood's archaeology field school with Dr. Jordan and with now Dr. Bates, Brian Bates, and so I, that was a that was a really fantastic experience. And and then I also worked at the Children's Museum of Richmond for about a year, and then I, I decided to go ahead and, and get my master's. So I, I moved up to Northern Virginia and lived in Arlington while I was uh, getting a master's at George Washington University in DC. So I was there for the summer. So several weeks, not, not terribly long, but I think long enough to, um, you know, to get a real sense of the community. And so I was, in, I was in Cape Town for several weeks and then I lived with a host family in, in a remote part of Northern Namibia. Up near the Angolan border and my my host family was a herero pastoralist family and i went to work with with the the father with the the host father um who was a teacher <laughs> in the in the nearby village so that was really fun too and really really interesting to say the least <laughs> i got this crazy opportunity to attend the funeral of an elder in the community and and it was like this this three-day event and so I didn't go for all three days but they they traditionally they slaughter a cow as part of honoring you know the person's life and because he was an elder he had actually fought against the Germans um like at the turn of the century and I didn't share my German you know ground with anyone there. I mean I was already the only you know, white foreigner there, you know, of all of these people that had gathered from, from all around to pay tribute to this man. And they, it was just an amazing experience. The women all dressed in their traditional garb, which included these special hats that have like wings on them that kind of look like cattle horns. And they were performing in traditional dance and wailing, and then they they basically recreated the battle as part of the funeral between the Germans and, and the Herrero. I just was felt so privileged that I could be there and witness that. And, you know, I didn't, I, I just, just to be a fly on the wall was, was really incredible. South Africa and Namibia both had at the time, you know, this was like in 2001, within the last decade, they had really, you know, enshrined universal human rights and a number of other really important things, you know, in their newly formed kind of constitutions. They were both, you know, coming out from really years and years and years of colonialism and struggling with, you know. As like kind of nascent democracies, I would say, and so anyway it was it was it was just a, a really, really fantastic experience. I ended up going with um, a group of about ten to twelve other master's students. they weren't all anthropology masters students, there were some studying education, some studying public health, some economists so and education, so we had a, like a number of different kind of you know priorities i guess you would say but i ended up doing a research project with two of the other graduate students doing an evaluation of the effectiveness of of one of the one of the ngos that was funding women's printing and weaving cooperative in khayelitsha which is in a very poor area in the flats just outside of cape town south africa so we did a lot of interviews with the women that were participating and and a lot of the interviews really focused on on public health and on their you know economic development and and really on gender relations and how well the the program was kind of addressing a lot of the problems that were going on at the time. most of the the women were were also mothers. And one of the great things about the program was that they you know they did provide. Childcare for these mothers, so that they could get skills and start building their own income. I think it definitely solidified my decision to to work in nonprofits as a career, to really devote whatever you know skills I have and, and knowledge I have to helping to make the world. I mean it sounds so cheesy but just make it a little bit of a of a more equitable place in whatever whatever capacity I can. So the organization that I work for now in Med Partnerships for Children they they have a number of different programs to to basically help level the playing field for kids who who don't get to grow up in western Virginia or other places that really grow up in averse, you know, adverse Surroundings which are being made so much worse right now by climate change and giving them the tools and really building their capacity to build a better future. And I I also think it's if you look at not only the impacts of climate change, but if you look at like population demographics, Africa is really where it's at. Like, you know, that there's they already have proportionally many more young people than in other regions of the world. And those young people, they need the opportunities that a lot of people in other places take, you know, take for granted. So opportunities for education, for public health, for um, environmental conservation. Like we um, in Med does a lot of adaptive agriculture work, and in knowing that climate change is going to hit Sub-Saharan Africa very hard, and and people that you know, are already struggling, where they're, they're not getting the amount of rainfall that they used to get, and they're not able to grow the crops that they used to be able to grow. And, you know, a lot of youth that are being really, you know, getting really disillusioned with farming, you know, or with other occupations that just aren't, like, they just don't seem tenable at this point, unless we, we start to implement things in a different way and think about things in a different way. The organization I work for now in Med has an office in Johannesburg, in South Africa. They also have a number of regional offices across um, South Africa, and we're considering having our next board meeting there. And so I don't know. Hopefully, there might be an opportunity for me to go. I would love to see some of the projects that have been funded, you know, at work in South Africa, particularly the climate-smart agriculture that I mentioned. InMed has a simplified form of aquaponics, which combines soilless crop production with fish farming in like a module-based symbiotic closed system. And they're working with a number of different farmers cooperatives, including people with disabilities, women, youth. And then they're also, they're using aquaponics to generate a really significant amount of fresh food, fresh produce and fish, which then goes to feed school children. So they um, they have school gardens that include aquaponics and a number of schools where we're also doing a, a program called Health in Action, which really focuses on on public health. And uh, so there's there's a lot of nice synergies there. And we've had some really good momentum with it, including the current president Ramaphosa of of South Africa is really keen on finding, you know, new economic development opportunities for youth and and wants to include aquaponics as, you know, on a national scale in all of the secondary schools. So so it's 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 a really exciting moment I think for this kind of solution. I think the first, you know, that first time that I was in Africa. I mean, my, my mind was just blown with everything (laughs) that I had experienced and it wasn't just the family that I lived with or like the research that I was able to do and the different, you know, NGOs that I was able to meet. But I also, we got to, we got to go to Etosha National Park, which is a conservation area in, in Namibia. And, um, we just like sat around this, this water hole where all these animals would come and, um, you know, we saw, we saw white riders, we saw like a whole herd of elephants and we saw jackals, which scared the hell out of me. It was an amazing experience. And I think a real growth experience. I guess I would just say that like Longwood was, was just such a special place to me and, I developed lifelong close friendships with you know, with my roomies from, from Longwood, and I will always be really grateful for that. I think also, you know, Dr. Jordan was the one that really introduced anthropology to me and sparked a real interest in Africa and in really in, in nonprofits. And I have him to thank, too, for just helping to shape my, my career as, as a nonprofit professional. So I really... I love Longwood. <laughs> and um, you know, I'll always be grateful that I had that experience there.
1: Just like Anna Prow in Act 1, Alexandra's career began at Longwood and was shaped by an experience working to do good and help communities in Africa, and has been hugely impactful on her professional pathway.
0: Thanks to both Anna Prow and Alexandra Kenny South for sharing their stories and again to producer Megan Wilson.
1: That wraps up this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our feed through Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcast is produced by Cordy Walker, Ryan Catherwood, me, Paige Rollins, Megan Wilson, and the Office of Alumni and Career Services at Longwood University. If you have a story you think would be great for the podcast, please let us know. Email us at career at See you next time for another edition of the Day After Graduation podcast.